Turning back in the Word of the Lord today to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. And then when we have read that, we'll be turning back to Genesis and the chapter 3 and the verse 14 and the verse 15 there. And we're taking the topic today, the first Christmas promises. So with the Word of God open before us in Matthew 1, verse 1, we will read that, and then we'll move back to Genesis and the third chapter. The book of the generation, or you could read there, the book of the Genesis, Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And notice as we pass through here the prominence that is given to David, because you might have thought that we'd begin right back at this point to Adam. But the person that's showcased in this genealogy is David, and there is good reason for that, and Abraham is mentioned prominently as well. And then Genesis 3, the verse 14 and 15, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We'll turn to the Lord in prayer. Just let me remind you, those that are fit and active and all the rest of it, on Tuesday morning, 10 o'clock, Henry Jones playing fields, we'll have our customary Boxing Day football. So if any of you are ready to go for that, then please do remember the time and do turn up on Tuesday morning, 10 o'clock, Henry Jones playing fields. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, to Thee we come today. We are mindful that we come, and as we meet together in this fashion and we sing about the joy of Christmas, the birth of the Lord Jesus, and what a joyous occasion that was for all of those prophecies to center on Him and be so dramatically fulfilled. That was a joyous day. For one Bible passage after another, after another, after another, just to be answered in the birth of the Lord Jesus defies all attempts at probability, mathematical probability, just puts it out the window, a distinct virtual impossibility that all of these should be fulfilled in one person at this particular time. And that thrills our hearts, and it tells us the Word of God is tremendously reliable. There is no book like it. As David said of that sword, there is none like it. Give it me. And so we say that of the book of God today, there's nothing to compare with Holy Scripture. But Lord, we're conscious that while we meet in joy, there are those who have been plunged into sorrow. And we pray for our brother, Reverend David Gordon, that thy hand will be upon him and all the family at the time of their intense grief on the loss of their mother. We pray as well for our sister Rosemary, that I will draw near to her on the passing of her sister-in-law, and we know the closeness of the family connections there. And we pray that I will be with Rosemary and her brother, and may they know the help of God the Holy One even today, and others who can't contemplate Christmas without at least a mixture of grief in their joy. We pray thy hand will be upon them in blessing. 
the touch of thy great spirit will be their portion. And the physician of souls, the Lord Jesus, will be the person that draws alongside and helps them even now. Come and answer our prayer. Focus our minds now as we come to thy holy word. And we pray that thou wilt illuminate our hearts regarding the truths that we are presenting this morning. In Jesus' name and to God's eternal glory, we ask these things. Amen. With the possible exception of John chapter 3 and verse 16, no verse in the Bible is more crucial and foundational, decisive, and definitive than Genesis 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The renowned Old Testament pastor and scholar, Alec Motier, born in Dublin back in 1924, he wrote, The whole of Scripture is not packed into every Scripture, but we may allowably expect every Scripture to prepare and make room for the whole. This is what happens in Genesis 3 and verse 15. Another man of God described the text like so many others have done before him. He called it the proto-evangel. In other words, he's saying it is the first gospel message that ever appeared in the history of man. That's what we have in Genesis 3 and 15. And he says as well, we have here the gospel in embryo. As it grows to full maturity by reading the rest of the story, from Adam's rebellion to Abraham's royal seed, Scripture chronicles God's unfolding plan of redemption. The serpent would strike the Savior's heel, and the Savior would forever crush its head. And so from this foundational text, this proto Evangel, the first gospel message, the gospel in embryo. We're going to trace today several important issues that are surging all at once to the surface in our text in Genesis 3 and the verse 15. The first thing that it does is it plants a prophecy, and that prophecy runs right through all the Bible. It plants a prophecy that runs throughout the Old Testament Scripture and is finding fulfillment in the New. And so the prophecy here, it's repeated and rehearsed, and it is renewed so many times. And the prophecy, what does it do? Well, it creates an expectation within the hearts of all who hear, an expectation of a Redeemer who is coming. And that Redeemer would be an ascendant, or described here as a seed of Adam and Eve. Now, right here in Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Eve was rather premature. And as it turned out, she was horribly wrong. Because she thought her firstborn son, Cain, was the fulfillment of the prophecy made to her in Genesis 3 in the verse 15. And so we have our language in Genesis 4 and 1 where, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain. What did she say when Cain was born? And said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now the name Cain basically meant, I've got him. Or here he is. And she thought, in her arms that day, she was cradling the Messiah. I have the man from the Lord, she thought. But instead, as we know now, in her arms that day, she held not the Messiah, but a murderer. In a deliberate echo of this line of thought about the planting of the prophetic seed, we have God's covenant made with the patriarch Abraham. And right from this point, the whole terminology of the seed, the seed, the seed gains prominence. It's like, well, there used to be bells that 
well, a recording of bells that were chimed out here. We were thinking about that the other night when we talked about the watch night service, and apparently for five solid minutes, it used to be the case that those bells clanked and jangled and peeled and got on from the roof of the building here. It hasn't happened for many years, and uh, we have no immediate plans to uh, reinstall it for fear of annoying all the neighbors around. But in the days of Abraham, God's covenant, His promise, made to Abraham about a seed, a people but then ultimately a person. And it's like a tolling church bell in Abraham's life. Every time we're reading about him, that's why we have all these references here in the book of Genesis. Genesis 12 and 7, for example, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. Right into Genesis 13, 15 and 16. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And when it appeared that this whole prophecy, this promise of God, had run into problems, had really hit the buffers, was a seed planted on concrete that had absolutely no chance of germinating because here's Abraham and he and his wife Serum, they're so far past childbearing age that it is now humanly impossible that this promise and prophecy is going to be fulfilled at that time of human impossibility. God renews this old prophecy of the Messiah that is coming through, he says, Abraham's loins. Genesis 15 is keen. Genesis 15, verse 3 to 5. And Abraham said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed. God tells him, Look now toward the heaven, tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Genesis 15, 13. Know of a surety thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. Genesis 15, 18, unto thy seed have I given this land. We have a lot of talk at the moment with all the pro-Palestinian rallies. From the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. Here's God's verdict on all of that. Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt onto the great river, the river Euphrates. And so we trace the whole progress of this promise as it bounces along down through the centuries of time here. And in the life of Abraham in particular, Genesis 21 verse 12, God said unto Abraham, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. What is God doing here? This prophecy that he planted away back, Genesis 3.15, he is mentioning again and again and again. If you're reading your Bible, you can't help but see the progress of this seed. God is doing something in the history of Israel that has its genesis, its beginning, its first planting in a promise given back in Eden. And when you get, and this is why we read Matthew chapter 1 this morning, when you get to the beginning of the New Testament and open the Bible there at Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, you find the first 16 words in English or English Bible there, Matthew 1 and 1, you've only got eight in the Greek of that same verse, but they summarize the whole story of the Bible up to that point. And here's the summary. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so, if you want to explore what the Old Testament is all about, you can pick out key characters, because that's what's happening here in Matthew. Key characters who carried the story along all through Old Testament times, Adam and Abraham and David and Jesus. Oh, I don't see Adam named there. Well, he is not specifically named, but the story contained here in the words, the book of the generation can be translated the book of Genesis. That occurs only in two Old Testament passages in the Greek Old Testament, and that is in Genesis 2 and 4 and Genesis 5 and 1. Genesis 2 and 4 is about the origin, the beginning, the genesis of heaven and earth, that's a place, whereas Genesis 5 and 1 concerns the origin, the genesis, the beginning of Adam and Eve. Those are human people. From the beginning, what is God doing? 
God is in a particular business. And he's always and only in this particular business. And that is establishing his people in his place by his power. That's what God has always been about. So it begins with Adam and Eve, it continues in the covenants given to Abraham and to David, and these are finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the Davidic king who will establish the kingdom of Israel, that true kingdom. And so in the Old Testament, we can sometimes wade into deep water and become confused a little there. Matthew tells us, let's simplify it all. Let's look at key people within it. Let's look at the promises, the prophecies that were given to them. And to help us frame the entire Old Testament story, this will do the job. So his first words summarize the storyline so far. And he divides his retelling of the Old Testament history into three convenient sections. Did you notice the name David? is in the center of that, because he's at number 14, number 15 as well, in the genealogy that puts him at the pivot of the list, chapter 1, verse 6. He's named at the beginning, as we've mentioned in the Bible reading, chapter 1 and 1. He is named also at the end, Matthew 1 and verse 17. And so from the outset, Matthew is striving that his readers will see Jesus Christ through the person of David. The genealogy. Matthew's entire gospel, for this matter, is about how Jesus is king. He is David's greater son. God made a promise to David about one of his sons. The genealogy shows how he has fulfilled that. Now, you and I know human promises are flawed. We can make them and break them just as readily as we make them. But when God promises you something, you can take that promise right to the bank. If he has pledged himself to you, he is not going to let you go no matter what happens. Israel, let's put it like this, could not outsin the promises of God, and neither can you or I. Now, this seed, this prophecy, going down through the ages would fall on some strange soil along the way. And the genealogy we read in Matthew chapter 1, and I didn't just read it today to pretend that I could read names. I read it because there are names contained within it that we need to note. For example, the woman that Matthew includes. Now, we're dealing with a patriarchal society. It's all about the men. It's surprising to include females at all, but there are female names in the genealogy of Christ. Now, if they are to be included, we might expect to see those who we describe as the matriarchs of the faith. Maybe Eve should be there, should she not? Sarah, she was a key figure. Rebecca or even Leah could have been there. But instead, Matthew includes less likely females who are... Gentiles, Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, Ruth was a Moabite, Bathsheba, the wife of a Hittite, the family of Jesus includes all nations. They have rough paths, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, not only are they Gentiles, their past is over cast with shame and abuse, and each was taken of advantage of. Tamar shunned by Judah, Rahab, Canaanite harlot, Bathsheba taken advantage of by King David, but all of these women, without exception, are tenaciously loyal to Jehovah. When we come to Mary, and we discover Mary has now realized I'm expecting a baby. The angel Gabriel announces to her concerning that future son, he shall be great. And those words are very important. I know the term great is overused. Maybe amazing is almost taken over from it. Everything that's described now is amazing, or it used to be everything is great. And it kind of becomes redundant in terms of its real meaning and traction here. But 
he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Luke 1 and the verse 32. What is Gabriel doing here? Reaching back into the Old Testament. Picking up a phrase already made to Abraham, already made to David. To Abraham in Genesis 12 and 2. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. To David in 2 Samuel 7 and 9. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. And that he that would be great promised to Mary in Luke one thirty two is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the long-promised Messiah. If you were reading that, and we're not, in the Latin Vulgate today. You would find it's rendered as she, implying it was Mary. But that's only put that way because it's in the interest of Roman dogma. It is not she that would be great. It is he, it is Christ, who would conquer because he is her seed. And last week we dealt with all of these aberrant notions such as the immaculate conception of Mary and all of that. So what we have here in Genesis 3.15 is the establishing of a principle, the planting of a prophecy. That prophecy, it runs right through the Old Testament. It creates all the time the expectation of a redeemer who would be a descendant, come down the line, seed off Adam and Eve. And that ultimate seed would be Christ Jesus, the Messiah. And here's what it happened. Exactly as God had said it would. God's word is always valid, will always be inevitably fulfilled. So this Proto-evangel, first gospel message that we pick up in Genesis 3.15. It plants a prophecy. But then it provides the parameters, the limits, within which God would redeem his people from their sin. It provides the parameters within which God, within which God would redeem his people from their sin. Let's read Genesis 3.15 again. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. Here's the bit we're interested in. And thou shalt bruise his heel. Thou shalt bruise his heel. It's the first note that God strikes here that reveals what he is intending to do for man, to redeem man after the fall in the Garden of Eden. Man has ruined himself by his sin. God will redeem him by his sovereign mercy. It's a very sweet thought that God dealt in grace with Adam before he dealt in government. When Adam and Eve failed to obey the terms of the covenant of works, Genesis 3 and 6, God did not destroy Roy them, that would have been justice had he done, but he didn't. But instead, he revealed to them a covenant of grace by promising a Savior, Genesis 3 and 15, one who would restore the kingdom that had crumbled under the devastating weight of man's sin in that paradise. Now, the way God is going to do this, God's method of grace is costly. The heel of the Savior is going to be bruised. The newborn screening center from, for the United Kingdom tells you how a blood sample is taken from a baby, and that blood sample is taken from its heel. Every baby is offered newborn blood spot screening, known as the heel prick test. And so when the baby ideally is five days old, that Healthcare professional will come in and prick the heel and collect four drops of blood on a special card. And the taking of that blood sample helps them find out if the baby has one out of nine rare but serious health conditions. Most babies won't have any of these conditions, but for the few who do, then the benefits of screening like this are clearly enormous. Thou shalt bruise his heel. Now this picture we have 
In Genesis 3.15, has to be seen in context. The context is, thou shalt bruise his head. So the head of the serpent is going to be crushed. But in the crushing of the serpent's head, there will be the fang into the heel. And that heel will be bruised. And it will shed blood. And you have an allusion right away to the shedding of substitutionary blood. And that's what lies behind the provision of animal skins that we read of later in Genesis 3 and verse 21, that covering that Adam and Eve received. Animal had to be killed, blood had to be shed for the covering to be given. In Genesis 4, 3 to 5, we have Abel's offering acceptable to God, Cain's rejected. Why? Because Abel's offering was the first fruits of his flock. Blood was going to be shed, and right away, the path of redemption is becoming clear, as we later have revealed to us in Hebrews 9.22, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. In Ephesians 1 and verse 7, we have this, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. And we have other pictures of this all the way through. Talk of the seed is ongoing. Let's get into Abraham and his time zone for a little time again. In Genesis 22, Abraham commanded, Go up Mount Moriah with the son Isaac. A sacrifice is demanded for many hours. It seemed like the sacrifice is going to be Abraham's beloved son Isaac, but at the critical moment. Abraham was told to look around, and he sees there a ram caught in a thicket. He takes the ram, slays him, offers him up for a burnt offering before the Lord. And so that scarlet stream, it trickles down Mount Moriah, and it would later flow from the same mountain when Christ on Calvary was crucified. Abraham walked by way of the blood. There is no other way. The Hebrews demonstrated that on that night when they were delivered from the bondage of Egypt. Deliverance, emancipation, redemption was by blood alone. Exodus 12 sketches the detail how the Hebrews were told, take the best lamb, kill it, eat it, apply its blood to the outside of your houses. Now imagine how after that event, You'd have been talking to those Hebrews, Israelites, and asked them, well, how did it happen? What is your testimony? How do you recall that night? They would have said something like this. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death, but our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God. We took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and He led us out. Now we're on the way to the promised land. We're not there yet, of course, but we have the Lord to guide us, and through the blood sacrifice, we have His presence in our midst. So He'll stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. Now think about that. That's a Hebrew testimony. A Christian today could basically say what the Hebrew said back then, word for word. Our mediator is not Moses, but it is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Herman V. A. Kuma wrote a treatise on the centrality of blood in the epistle to the Hebrews. And when you read through the Hebrews, you'll find here that the blood of Christ is spoken about again and again and lifted up and exalted and put in the highest place, superior to any other blood superior to all animal blood ever shed, because the blood of Jesus alone is able to effect forgiveness for all time. And Kuma noted in that treatise that 14 out of 21 occurrences of the word blood in that epistle of Hebrews, 14 of them, two-thirds of them, occur between chapters 9 and 10, and that's the big flow that brings us to the cross. Andrew Peterson wrote the lines of a hymn, Behold the Lamb that goes away back to Exodus 12. For its word pictures but the Lord, 
He gave to Moses a word for the people. He said their firstborn sons would live to see another day. Put the blood of a lamb on the doorway, and death will pass right over him. That night all of the children of Israel prayed, Lord, let your judgment pass over us. Lord, let your love hover near. Don't let your sweet mercy pass over us. Let this blood cover over us here. And we are still saying exactly the same thing today. Because for our redemption, our cleansing, our forgiveness, we cannot go anywhere else but to the blood of Christ shed in atonement for His people. Therefore, this proto-evangel, first gospel message back in Genesis 3.15, it plants a prophecy runs right through the Old Testament, raises the expectation all along the time of a Redeemer who will be a descendant, a seed of Adam and Eve. It provides the parameters by which God will redeem His people from their sins by blood alone. It shall bruise His heel. But it also, back here in Genesis 3.15, it's amazing how much is packed in here. It publishes a plan publishes a plan. It reveals an explanation for all of the disorder and disintegration and trial that we find in our world. Satan is at work, and Satan is working according to his plan. But God just pulls the lid off it right away, tells us right at the start what the devil's going to be at. He will be bruising the heel of the chosen seed. Now, I know there's no specific mention of Satan in Genesis 3, 15, only a serpent. Read verse 14 and 15 of Genesis 3. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. While the text itself does not clearly identify the serpent as Satan, the rest of the Bible makes it plain this is Satan appearing as a serpent. In fact, in Ezekiel, the chapter 20, at the verse 13 to 19, we're told that Satan was in Eden. He was a serpent. Many other passages identify the devil as a serpent, snake-like creature. Job 26, 13, Isaiah 51 and 9. And look at, in the Bible, how he grows. Like the reptile, getting bigger with age to become the great red dragon of Revelation 12 and 9 and Revelation 20 and 2. Now, there's no doubt Adam and Eve are responsible for what they did, and they're punished because of that responsibility. But their actions were inextricably linked with the malevolence and the malice of the serpent, the devil. There's more by way of explanation for sin than mere human free will. The serpent is a part of that, which the Lord God had made, Genesis 3 and 1. But he's no longer in the condition in which God had made him. That serpent is now warped, and he's wicked, and he's twisted, and he's tyrannical, and he's dangerous, and he's deadly. And so he proves that here. Now, Genesis pulls a scream around the origins and the nature of the devil's rebellion. You'll pick it up in other parts of the Word of God. You'll find the reason for his fall in other passages. First Chronicles 21.1, Job 1 and 2, Zechariah 3, 1 to 2, 2 Peter 2 and 4, Jude 6. Eve's sin back then was something more than internal. It came from the outside. As Genesis 3 and 1 tells us, now the serpent was more subtle. Then any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. People asked, Did this serpent actually speak? I have no problem believing that. Why would he not have done? We may not understand everything in the way that Satan used the body of a serpent, but we know this is true and no mere fable, because when you read in the New Testament, you'll find on occasions, under certain circumstances, demonic spirits had the ability to indwell human or animal bodies and speak 
Luke 8, 33. And so on this occasion in Eden, Satan chose to indwell the body of this precursed serpent, which might well have been a beautiful animal back then before the curse, and use it and speak through it. And of course, always what the devil said is more important than how or what he used to say it. Spurgeon said, It is idle to call the narrative of the fall a mere allegory. Many people do today. One had better say at once that he does not believe the book. If that's the line you're taking. There was a real serpent as there was a real paradise. There was a real Adam and Eve who stood at the head of our race and they really sinned and our race has really fallen. Believe this. And of course we must. The devil, he's the one not to be believed because he's a murderer and a liar. John 8, 44, he's a deceiver. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Ephesians 6, 11. What was Eve's first mistake in Eden? What was her first mistake? That she even entered into a discussion with the serpent. We are called in Scripture to talk to the devil, but we're never told, have a discussion with him. Present argumentation to him. We simply, we strongly tell him, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Jude verse 9. Notice, in contrast to what Eve did here, what God did when he approached the serpent, and he was reading out his downfall and his doom in Genesis 3, 14 to 15, the Lord God did not ask the serpent anything. Didn't begin to discuss. Didn't start a disputation because he knew that he was a liar. He simply pronounced sentence upon him. Satan's first attack targeted the Word of God. If he could make Eve confused about what God had said or doubt what God had said, well, then the battle was partially won already. And from the beginning, that's what the devil does, undermining the Word of God. And he can do that with us by just getting us not to doubt what God is saying in the Word, but just to neglect the Bible, not read it anywhere near as often as we should. The devil's winning right then. The direct challenge it's seen in Genesis 3, verse 4 and verse 5. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Ye shall not surely die. He's putting in the foundation here. Sucking Eve into a discussion. Planting the seed of doubt in her mind about God's word and showing as well her incomplete understanding of what God had said. And now when he's done this, he moves right in for the kill. The devil can only effectively work on you and I when he has got a foothold. Nobody falls. Like Adam and Eve fell in the garden all of a sudden. The foundation has already been laid. The foothold is already there. That's why we're told never to give place to the devil. Ephesians 4, 27. And that shows how remarkable it was when Jesus testified in John 14 and 30, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Not a place where he can find an argument, start a dispute. He hasn't got a single foothold on me because he was absolutely perfect. And in this direct challenge, he tells Eve, you know what you really should do here? You should doubt the goodness of God. If God lies to you, then how can he be good? He tries to get Eve to doubt the badness of sin. If this fruit, look at it, it's beautiful to look at. Must be delightful to taste. And if God doesn't want you to have that, sin can't just be as bad as he's making out. Doesn't it look wonderful? He wants us to see sin is something good that a bad God doesn't want us to have. So the basic argument is sin is not bad and God is not good. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, Satan and the flesh will present a thousand reasons to show how good it would be to disobey God's command. And he says, by follow-up, 
God knows that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes will be opened. Now, that temptation gets traction because there's truth in it. There is some truth in what he says. It was true their eyes would be opened, and that was fulfilled in Genesis 3 and verse 7, but their eyes were instantly opened to what did they see? Their sin, and they saw the rebellion. That's the sight they got. It's as if a deaf person was promised you're going to be able to hear again, but when they heard, all they heard was screaming, incessant screaming. So Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. They did know good and evil, but they didn't know it as God's. You see, to come with a complete lie, not a mixture of truth and a lie, to come with a complete lie is rarely effective in temptation. So the devil has to mix in a bit of truth with the temptation to get the temptation to have traction in our minds and hearts. Ye shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. Ah, wasn't that what the devil himself wanted? That's why he fell, because he wanted to be equal with God. And Eve tried to become a god by rebelling against God. Jewish rabbis, Ginsburg in particular, said, Here's what's being said. Hurry now, eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, become independent of God. Isn't that what people want to be today? We don't want this man to rule over us. They want to be their own bosses, not to be dictated to by the God who has made them, to whom they are accountable. Become independent of God, lest He bring forth still other creatures that will rule over you. And this goal of becoming God lies at the heart, you should note, of many false religions, including Mormonism, including the New Age movement. But you know what happens in all of these? In our desire to be gods, we don't have to become a Mormon for this or a New Ager for this. Just live in rebellion against God's Word, and that does it. In order to try and become gods, we end up becoming more like Satan, who said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be the Most High, Isaiah 14, 13 to 14. Do you know what we should be? We should be like Christ, who came as a servant. Matthew 20, 28. He wasn't saying, I want to rise above and dominate everybody. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So right at the beginning, what do we have here? The devil has his mask pulled off by God. God reveals his plan. He says, he's the thief who comes, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. By contrast, Christ is coming, the seed of the woman, that you might have life and have that life more abundantly. And I thank God that right at the beginning, he identifies the devil and he reveals his malicious purposes for us. He does it right at the start. Just as 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, lest Satan should get an advantage of you because we are not ignorant of his devices. And we come to the final point. Genesis 3.15, it plants a prophecy, running through all the Old Testament, raising the expectation of a redeemer who will be a descendant, the seed of Adam and Eve. It provides the parameters, the way by which God is going to redeem his people from their sin is by blood alone. It publishes a plan because it tells us right away what the devil is at. And it predicts a preeminence. For it signals the ultimate victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness. Christ the seed will bruise his head. And he did it at Calvary. And he does it, consigning him to the bottomless pit, ultimately. Bruise his head. It shall bruise his heel. Do you know what that means to you and I today if we are in Christ? We can work from an assurance of victory, not of defeat. It's gratifying to know that this principle 
of the victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness, it is established right from the beginning. Genesis 3 and 15. Noted right there. Then it's echoed, of course, in the New Testament by our Lord Jesus Christ at Caesarea Philippi when he says, I say unto thee, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And if you would take all the pieces of that promise, dissect them, he's bringing his people together. I will build. He's building them on a firm foundation upon this rock. He's building something that belongs to him, lies to his heart, my church. And he's building it into a stronghold, not some crumbling ruin. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so when you do as we do in the Lord's Prayer and pray, thy kingdom come, you're just reminding yourself Christ has already won the war. The reality of his reign isn't yet fully realized. At present, we are sandwiched between the triumph of the cross and the termination of time. Use military terms between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day, Christ's first coming, his ministry on this earth leading to the cross. When the devil was decisively defeated, the day, that second coming, when paradise lost will be paradise regained, and history is moving. In fact, it's not just moving, it is hurtling inexorably towards a glorious and climactic end when the kingdoms, all of them, the kingdoms of this world, will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. You know something? This is a very valuable promise to hold on to when days are dark and discouraging, like today. The forces of death and darkness and the devil cannot prevail against or conquer the church. The old Puritan commentator John Trapp explained, these gates of hell, what are they? It's all the power and policy of hell combined. Another Bible commentator, Adam Clark, said our Lord's promise is this, the gates of hell, that is the machinations and powers of the invisible world. And he talks about in ancient times how the gates of fortified cities were used to hold councils in, were usually places of formidable, of great strength. Our Lord is saying, neither the plots, nor the stratagems, nor the strength of Satan and his angels will ever so far prevail as to destroy Christ and his church. And so today, people still are being saved, and the work of redemption is unfolding in enemy-occupied territory, despite the tireless and deadly opposition of the devil and his minions. But this story of redemption, you know what? It's not like reading a book that carries you along in suspense, and it's a cliffhanger right to the very end, and you haven't a clue how things are going to turn out. That is not what the Bible is. That until the last page is turned, we don't know what the end of the story is, and everything is uncertain up until that point. Oh yes, the precise nature of the devil's destiny as the lake of fire isn't disclosed until the end in Revelation 20 and verse 10, but from the very outset, Genesis 3.15, no less. From the very beginning, his doom is sealed. Which means for me, as I go about in the path of Christian discipleship, I work it all out within the context of the assurance of victory, rather than the prospect of defeat. Nobody put it better than Martin Luther. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure. For lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. That same word that the devil caused Eve to doubt. 
is the word that he dreads himself. Because he knows the book of God is what does to him all the necessary damage. And he thought he succeeded at Calvary. That he was triumphant over Christ on the cross. But he failed. He came after the seed right at the start. And instead of using a serpent, he used Herod to try and extinguish the seed and kill Christ. But he failed there. And he tried again at Nazareth in Matthew 4 when they were taking Christ on his first public sermon out of the synagogue, going to throw him over the hill, but he just departed out of their midst. The devil failed again. He didn't stop trying, but he really thought he had cornered Christ when he got him crucified. But he failed at the cross as well. Because though he did fulfill God's word, you will bruise his heel. He ended up having his own head broken. And we will share, if we are Christ, in his victory over the devil, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Romans 16 and 20. So this proto-evangel of Genesis 3 and 15, it plants the prophecy that runs through the Old Testament. The Redeemer will be the seed of Adam and Eve. It provides the parameters by which God will redeem his people from their sin by blood alone publishes a plan, tells us how the devil is working, predicts a preeminence. There will be victory in the kingdom of Christ over that of darkness. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And that's why we can sing Charles Wesley's splendid carol. It's probably the best. Theologically, I know he was an Arminian, but he came up with probably the best theological carol that we have in the book. And what does it say? Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise, the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power. Ruin nature now restore. Now in mystic union join thine to ours. Ours to thine. Charles Wesley knew the significance of Genesis 3 and 15. The first Christmas promises. <laughs> 